Hi, I'm Elise Platt and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on your radio dial. You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. And welcome to the show with your host Carl Fitzgerald where we as renegade economists investigate reality. That's what economics should be instead of this diversion play for monopolists, uh, directing people away from looking at where the easy money is. And really, uh, let's talk about an indictment of uh, economic analysis. Today, The Economist announced that Melbourne is the world's most livable city for the seventh year in a row. We've won it. And I had to look into it because I was just like, how on earth can we be the most livable city when we've got the second or third most uh, private debt per capita in the world? And uh, people from America overseas, they just laugh when they hear you can't buy a house for $500,000. You need seven, eight hundred thousand now in Melbourne. Ridiculous. Well, uh, of course, the economists uh, being... Uh, fairly standard neoclassical uh, economists, uh, they base their assessment on stability, healthcare, culture and environment, education and infrastructure. <sighs> so pretty much what I define the soft left there, the easy stuff that uh, lefties usually go for, uh, healthcare, culture, environment, education, uh, stock standard sort of things, not much to do really with economics outside of stability. Maybe you look at inequality there and infrastructure. Yep, still we're living off the backs of uh, past eras where those who owned location, location, paid a little bit more to fund our Melbourne City Loop, to fund uh, the extension of the Glen Waverley train line. So many of our train lines were funded by the fact that uh, landholders knew they were in for a good winning we hark back to the uh, UK example of the Jubilee train line where uh, it costs £3.5 million, but the value of real estate uh, surrounding those 11 train stations, just a, a one, I think it was a one or two kilometre radius, not far at all, uh, the value of those sites went up some £13.5 billion. So uh, that's what we're saying. Let's share those windfalls uh, uh, by redirecting this property bubble away from the banks, away from the 1% and towards funding this infrastructure al alongside giving us all a tax cut. So uh, that's what we talk about here and every week on The Renegade Economist. Uh, it's all about economics as if location matters. And here I am uh, commuting each day. Carl, uh, commuter polluter, feel free to call me. But uh, when you think about it uh, in uh, geographical economics, uh, they talk about something called the bid-rent theory. 
which refers to how the price and demand for real estate changes as the distance from the CBD increases. Different land users compete with one another for land close to the city. Yep, that's pretty simple, isn't it? Uh, this is based upon the idea that retail establishments maximise their profitability and think that uh, those those residents who are willing to pay more for land close to the CBD uh, will have a higher purchasing power. So uh, there's probably greater profit motives there. So uh, this is uh, all based upon the reasoning that the more accessible an area, the more profitable. Which all makes pretty good sense in uh, one's thinking, but when you consider that economic theory has written out this and it's left to the geographers really to uh, talk about this sort of stuff. Planners are also aware of it, but uh, maybe once or twice every two or three years, The Economist runs a story that uh, relates to uh, land and the incredible uh, windfall gains that some make from it and how we should be sharing that through the tax system. There's at least some acknowledgement there, but you just got to pinch yourself and go, how can you have uh, a global livability ranking that doesn't include housing affordability in it? Just bizarre. So, of course, as we stated time and time again on this show, what this means is that uh, both the mayor and the premier will be very chuffed about this award. And uh, so behind the scenes are Melbourne's property lobby, be very happy to uh, slap that world's most livable city sticker on their next Asian property display they've got going. Who knows what? But uh, that's what ends up happening. Uh, these sort of uh, awards add, well, they give a stamp of approval to our community, don't they? And uh, people want to be a part of that. They want some fresh air. They want uh, some infrastructure that actually gets them somewhere. They want good health care. They want good schools. That's what you get for free when you buy a house, said one real estate agent recently. Well, unfortunately, uh, instead of taxing our wages, we should be taxing the land. So, uh, yeah, listen, thinking about this bid rent theory and livability and uh, my new uh, circumstances on uh, living life on what I've nicknamed the Calder Cannonball Run on the Calder Highway. Goodness me, some drivers are madmen. When you uh, think about that and uh, th these commutes people are putting in, extreme commutes of two hours plus, I'm lucky it's only one and a quarter hours. Uh, if anyone's uh, looking for a ride out of Malmesbury, uh, leaving around about 9am, uh, returning around about uh, 6, 6.30pm each night, please uh, get in touch at renegades.earthsharing.org.au. I'm sure we'll have a few interesting chats. But, uh, yeah, there's uh, an index you guys need to know about uh, whilst we're talking on this topic. It's called the Vampire Index, and that stands for Vulnerability Assessment for Mortgage, Petrol and Inflation Risks and Expenditure. And that's by our friend uh, Jago Dodson at RMIT and his colleague Neil Sipe. And uh, Jago's been uh, co-hosting our events down here in Melbourne with uh, Cameron Murray uh, author of Game of Mates, amongst other things. So, uh, yeah, that, that's the sort of thing I'm looking at uh, very closely now. I think I've got the mortgage under control. 
thanks to our windfall in Braybrook. But uh, it's petrol costs that are adding up. So with that in mind, I want to uh, slide over to this short interview. All right, listeners, last night I... Now, as a polluter commuter, I uh, went and filled up my car and nearly flipped. Looking at the petrol prices, I quickly knew the subject of today's radio show. And we're joined here by Andre Fersov from Petrol Spy, one of the number of apps you can find online to help you deduct what's happening with uh, petrol prices. So, Andre, great to have you on the show. Uh, what are you seeing with your first-hand evidence of uh, Melbourne's, Australia's petrol market? What is driving these price changes when uh, last week I was paying a dollar three a dollar four cents per liter and uh, last night it was at one dollar thirty five one dollar thirty eight at many places why such a big change so quickly when the price of uh, singapore mogas 95 uh, had barely changed so larger those uh, communicate prices between each other using a system called informed sources uh, so they do it indirectly because doing it directly would be illegal and uh, using this system they can see what the price is in the area and once one of the retailers lifts the price, others follow and so on the same day you get a huge price hike. Once that happens they start to raise down like reducing price every day by one or two cents and that lasts like three or four weeks and then they lift price for 20 or 30 cents in one day why they do it this way i don't exactly know but it's possible that this is only possible way for them to extract more money rather than uh, leaving price at like lower level yeah, I can't really explain why they choose this kind of algorithm of doing it. Because according to the ACCC, there's a pricing cycle in Sydney of 30 days on average over the last five or six cycles. In Melbourne, it's 48 days. And in Perth, it's only seven days. So there are these different price cycles around Australia not related to international pressures. Yeah, I can't really explain explain uh, the length of the cycle it might be something about size of the cities uh, possibly it might be demand driven in some sense but i'm not sure it's really interesting it sounds like a, a topic out of uh, a spy novel uh, uh, giant petrol companies uh, entering their data onto a website called Informed Sources and that acts as a, a, a bridge, a trigger. A trigger. Yeah. And it's not seen as an oligopolic practice. Uh, it, uh, it's not some sort I of collusion. Think, uh, yeah, it was looked at by ACCC for a long time. And conclusion was that Informed Sources should publish those prices for a reasonable fee but what happened they started doing it but the fee is completely unreasonable they call it uh, they're like you know to provide data we have to pay for internet traffic and so on but 
it wouldn't cost you like insane amount of money to do that. So basically, situation is the same as it was before a triple C ruling. Mm, so no, it was not enforced. Okay. Well, it is enforced, but like the ruling is that you can buy this data from them for a reasonable price. So everyone can have access, everyone can see what the price is, not just the large, large retailers. But the price is completely unreasonable, so no one can afford it and see what the price is at those servers that they communicate prices for. To finish off, what would you like to see happen to uh, deliver fairer prices for Australian uh, commuters? Uh, I would have a look at uh, price cycle. As I said, I can't explain it myself. It happens because uh, prices are being communicated. So maybe it's possible that there can be no fuel cycle and maybe that would reduce average price maybe it wouldn't stay 105 110 cents but like the average that you pay over time might be less because mm. i know in uh, countries like new zealand uh, the prices uh, are very rarely change at the bowser it's only through international pressures that occurs possibly it it, it is because uh because there's no fuel cycle, maybe there are regulations they, that stop stop it from happening, maybe it's just the market size is too small for something like that to exist. And also fuel prices in New Zealand I think are quite a bit high as well. So the most expensive here is never as expensive as in New Zealand. Excellent. Well thank you very much Andre Fersov from Petrol Spy. Uh, thank you very much, Carol. Yeah, thanks. Very interesting there with uh, Andre Fersov from Petrol Spy. These companies, they can't get together in a hotel and uh, discuss what they want to do with prices, but they can use a intermediary such as a website called Informed Sources to signal that they have jacked the price up by 30 cents. Everyone else uh, gets the, the email alert probably. And uh, the cost of accessing that data is extraordinarily high, so uh, the everyday person can't really get a grip on it. For some reason, the ACCC accepts this. It's quite confusing. I've spent half the day trying to find out why they accept this. Couldn't get an answer, but uh, we'll keep uh, digging away on uh, why this sort of price volatility is seen as uh, acceptable market behaviour when... uh, uh, the Singaporean, all the international prices, whether it's uh, uh, Brent uh, crude oil or not, they're all very stable, if not coming down. And uh, to think that way back in uh, 2008, when uh, crude oil was at $147 a barrel, we were paying around about $1.43, $1.44 per litre. And now when uh, crude is uh, barely at $50, we're paying a similar amounts uh, once every uh, 48 days when it hits a uh, dollar 35 or so. So I'm going to start uh, keeping an eye on these uh, cycles and uh, might just happen to throw in those uh, couple of 20 litre 
petrol uh, containers I've got uh, that we took around Australia and fill them up. Uh, but uh, I learnt uh, as uh, we picked up a chainsaw recently for the farm that, of course, unleaded petrol only has a shelf life of a couple of weeks. So uh, you can't uh, stockpile it away when uh, prices are low. What a nice little monopolistic practice that is, as is keeping uh, access to the data at uh, incredibly high prices. Uh, regular listeners might uh, s- clue onto that and say, gee, that sounds very familiar in the uh, Real estate market as well, where so many reports are $6,000 plus to be able to access. And, uh, you know, even to buy a spreadsheet from RP Data is $6,000. And how's a little NGO like uh, Prosper Australia going to afford that? That's exactly what they want. So that only insiders can afford uh, this valuable information. Here we are in this era of geospatial analysis where we could animate flyovers over a community of what would happen when a new park is opened up in a community or a new high rise goes through. How will that affect uh, traffic numbers? How will that affect property prices? Uh, All those sort of things could be uh, displayed beautifully in an animated form so even Herald Sun readers could understand that uh, perhaps it's a good idea to get their head around how the value of location location fits into life in a community who gets the spoils who doesn't well uh, back to this oil game And uh, it's been good to follow up on this after that excellent interview with Chris Cook a few weeks ago. All right, uh, we're going to kick in with uh, the one and only Bernie Sanders commenting on oil speculation back in 2011. Still very relevant. I'm I'm still searching for the data here in the Australian context. Please uh, get in touch. If you know someone who's an expert on uh, oil commodities, uh, the futures market and, and what's happening here in Australia with the fact that uh, we've barely got any distilleries left. What sort of uh, sovereign risk does that put our nation in? As uh, life gets riskier and riskier with uh, Trumpite uh, economics and China flexing their muscles, let's have a listen to Bernie. I come from a rural state and the people in my state are extremely upset uh, about gas being $4 a gallon. Uh, They drive long distances to work, and this is money that's just coming right out of their paycheck, and many of those paychecks are already inadequate. Uh, The reality today is that supply is greater than it was two years ago. Demand is less than it was two years ago which suggests that if you're talking about supply and demand economics, the price should be lower than it was two years ago, and yet it is almost twice as high. Uh, The CEO of ExxonMobil suggested that he thought, this is the CEO of ExxonMobil, suggested that he thought that perhaps 40% of the cost of a gallon of gas at the pump had to do with speculation. Uh, people from Goldman Sachs suggested that number may be 20%. In the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill, the CFTC was required 
not asked, required to deal with speculation. They were required to do that in January. We are now in May, and they have not yet done that. Uh, we just met with uh, Chairman Gensler, and what I have to say is there is nothing that I heard from him which suggests any sense of urgency about the need to protect consumers or, in fact, to protect our economy. I was disappointed uh, by the tone of the meeting, the lack of urgency, the lack of specific ideas, and that's something we're just going to have to deal with. Uh, but to my mind, there is no question but that the same people on Wall Street who caused this recession in the first place, which has been so devastating to the American people, are at it again in terms of speculation in oil futures, driving up the price of oil very substantially. We need action, and we need action now. I will bet dollars to donuts that within several years, charges will be brought against people who are manipulating the market right now. But what the American people want is action now. They want the speculators to know that they cannot engage in illegal activity now. They want prices down now, not three years from now. And that was Bernie Sanders, uh, U.S. Senator, talking about uh, the role of Wall Street and this commodification of uh, these core essentials of life on Earth. And, uh, you know, certainly I want to see some sort of carbon tax uh, placed on commuters like myself to uh, encourage me to uh, return back to something more sensible, such as cycling and uh, public transport. But when it... Uh, it takes two two hours for me to get door to door from home, and twenty dollars each way on the train, uh, versus usually around about twenty dollars a day in the car. I will uh, take the faster car, which saves me uh, over two hours a day on that sort of commute time. So uh, carbon taxes would help rebalance uh, some of the externalities that our current pricing system totally ignores. But uh, alongside of that huge concern is uh, uh, the, the drive towards inequality that is happening across so many frontiers and it all comes back to monopoly rents and the ability to uh, manufacture scarcity to push prices up and that's what these speculators uh, are masterful at doing and uh, when you consider that's going on alongside of OPEC uh, the world's uh, most legitimized cartel. God knows how these guys have got away with it. But remember Chris Cook saying, look, uh, between the around the GFC time when prices for oil, uh, crude oil went from some $80 up to $150 uh, and then back again, uh, the supply volatility was only about 4%. So it had nothing to do with supply. It was all about speculation. And uh, to think that some 40% of uh, the price at the Bowser is, is related to speculation, according to the Exxon uh, Mobil CEO, uh, 38% is related to an excise tax here in Australia, plus 10% of GST. Um, yeah, there's... Uh, there's there's a lot of uh, wriggle room there to to make prices somewhat cheaper. But, uh, geez, I'm sounding very self-centred today, aren't I? But how about OPEC? You just have to double-check the language in this article out of Bloomberg. OPEC's success spoilt by 2018 supply worry is the heading in the AFR today. 
And uh, they're worried about the output accord expiring in March next year. And OPEC has uh, organised a, a supply crimping and uh, it, they're trying to push prices back up. But the problem they've got is that Libya, God damn those Libyans and their sovereign rights, they are pumping oil like nobody's business. Uh, uh, some of the sanctions have been lifted there. And over in Nigeria, similar things. Uh, supply is, uh, is continuing onwards and upwards. Uh, they're too broke uh, not to. So uh, there we go. Uh, it's, it's down to the Saudis and the Russians. What are they going to do uh, to try and manipulate prices back upwards uh, to look after their people? Well, OPEC is walking a tightrope, said Ehsan Al-Haq. London-based director of crude oil and products at Resource Economist. If prices are above US $60 a barrel, then shale oil will come back into the market. If OPEC producers decide to reduce more, prices will go, go above $60 a barrel. If they don't comply fully, then prices will go below $50. It's very difficult for them. Wow, what a nice problem to have, hey? And uh, interesting, they keep stats on things like this. OPEC's rate of compliance with its promised cutback slipped last month to 75%, the lowest since the accord started in January. (sighs) So talk about supply manipulations. Uh, Open and on the record there on this macro international level, but uh, down at the micro in between now, distribution system through our petrol retailers uh, there's plenty of trickery going on uh, in the background there's all sorts of signals are triggered uh, using third-party internet uh, uh, sources so uh, very very interesting that that's uh, going on and all those who have bought property on the sprawl of melbourne paying uh, you know $550,000 for a home on smaller and smaller blocks of land uh, being told that it's somewhat affordable because uh, prices are uh, you know, 200000 below the median these days. But uh, what they're not uh, of being told so openly is that uh, uh, whilst uh, the, the total, the pricing total is some 550 maybe 450 somewhere around there, the amount of land they're getting has shrunk. So that uh, they're basically like miners cottage, cottages, some of these affordable blocks are 30, 40 kilometers out of the city. And so the price per meter for the land is actually higher. So uh, we're not getting the returns on the public policy we were uh, uh, expecting in terms of uh, doubling uh, Melbourne sprawl. Uh, the insiders are are taking the gains because uh, we just don't have enough politicians who have any idea of these monopoly rents and this manufactured scarcity and the fact that uh, if anyone does talk about it, they're shot down by the Murdoch press, by the Conservatives. So one guy who uh, certainly knows about the uh, bid-rent curve is uh, the secretive developer, Michael Yates, who uh, was written up in The Age today by uh, Clay Lucas. 
He bought some Chapel Street land for $20.1 million in early 2014 and sold it later that year with planning approval from Mr. Guy, uh, at that time the planning minister, for $56 million, making uh, good old $36 million uh, very quickly. And in defense, he said, look, there were probably 2 or $3 million of costs on planning and legal expenses, and it took three or four years of work to get it done, said Mr. Yates. So, Gee, is that reasonable? He earns $36 million. Planning on uh, just uh, filling out the paperwork and uh, getting someone else to do the hard work, the building. Crazy stuff. Well, uh, let's hope that uh, more and more people catch on to all of this trickery that's going on. Uh, the big problem in the global economy is these middlemen getting in between the producers and the consumers uh, wherever you look, that's where the big money is being made. So uh, please uh, check out the show notes at earthsharing.org.au. And uh, remember, our 126th dinner is coming up on Tuesday, September the 5th. And watch out, uh, Finn and the Boldness are in the house coming up here on 3CR. Go to the dinner! Hi, we are... Oi, Gipnoi! From Catania, Sicily. Support 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, streaming live at 3cr.org.au. We are happy to discover this radio, because in Sicily this radio does not exist.